0: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find me.
2: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 69. This week we bring you two works of fantasy short fiction, beginning with They Would Only Be Roads by Darren Bradley. Darren is the author of three novels, Noise, 2010, Chimpanzee, 2014, and Totem, 2015, With a BA, an MA, and a PhD in literature and theory, he works as an acquisitions and production editor at Resurrection House, having previously spent a number of years teaching writing and literature at several universities. He also worked as the full-time video game writer at id Software for two years, and served in various editorial and design capacities for a number of independent presses and journals. He lives in Texas with his wife, where he dreams of empty places. You can find him online via the link on our website. The story is narrated by Alex Weinler. Alex writes short fiction for magazines and podcasts and is the author of the anthology of shock comedic tragic stories, the Decapophiliac and science fiction novel Border. A long-time sophonaut, he's finally got up the courage to narrate and he does it very well. He lives in Fulburn, England in a cottage that consumes bulbs of unusual wattage. And now, They Would Only Be Roads, by Darren Bradley.
3: Presta fingered the chain. He'd pulled it from the tank behind one of the commodes downtown, in Idio, the old feed mill-turned-nightclub near the depot. The chain had absorbed such faith in the dank water pulling endlessly as expected, as the clubbers believed it would. Prester imagined each flushing synapse exhausting its neural blast all the way through the chain and into the water, where it rippled gently into the lime-scarred porcelain. Idio's clubbers had no doubt empowered the chain to degrees that, no matter how he found his gnosis, Prester would never fully measure. The tarnished scars on the delicate chain's aged links reminded him of flowers, complete with rusted stems and lines of calcium like pale roots. He took a deep breath as he eased out of his reverie, now acutely aware of his apartment's water-stained breath. With a cough, he eased the chain back into his pocket. It had invaded his thoughts with decay enough for now. "'I'm going to need more charms,' he said aloud. The phosphor glow of his computer monitor rendering his fingers blue. Alan? He called. The screen on his link pad blinked at his elbow, its colors momentarily negative as the slender machine stirred awake. Prester glanced at it. Sorry. Thought you were in the box. Lacking speakers to respond, the pad blinked its patience as Prester linked it up to his stationary computer. You set? Presta asked after a moment. "'I'm here,' Alan's androgynous voice said. "'I need more charms,' Presta told it. "'A lot more.' Alan thought for a moment, its status bar slipping across the monitor's screen. "'You have two hundred inactive,' it reported. Presta looked at the diagram tacked to his wall. The newsprint had yellowed in the last six months.' and the storms that had softened the city last weekend had curled its edges. In lines of colours, twisting, arranged in Solomonic sigils, yoked together by strands of brittle yarn, his ready charms littered the page. Names, addresses, email servers, they all promised power in different guises. Some signified chain letters still sleeping in his filing cabinet. Others were acronyms for various forwards in his email inbox. A few were rumours he hadn't started yet. Each carried its own charm, the granted wish it promised for spreading it around. Prester didn't have enough, not to make his new right capable of generating the wishes it would need. He needed at least enough to diffuse the Levites' anger, should an uninvited wish or two slip past the protective right and into their sanctum. Prester didn't care what it was they wanted so badly to secure, just wanted the money. "'No good,' he finally concluded. "'I already set most of them in the right—counter-charms.' He scratched his head. "'And I need the few spares to get out of here later.' Aylan did some more thinking. As familiars went, it was slow. But Presta had counted on it for so long, he didn't want to summon a new one, not with today's risks on the web.' There was too much at stake now to open himself up to whatever strange programs would answer his call. Taylor, Elan eventually reported, has released eighty charms in the last five days. Prester wheeled away from the computer, the chair's hissing casters sighing his frustration. With enough active to release that many so quickly, Taylor wouldn't surrender any for cheap. But what had she done with them? "'Why do you need so many?' Taylor asked. The pipeline was making something digitally husky of her voice. Presta recalled with a shudder how long it had taken him to separate the glamour she'd created for herself in the line from how she'd sounded in the bedroom. Presta pushed Aylan's headphone deeper in his ear. "'It's for a job. I've got a deadline. "'You can't farm your own?' "'No.' "'Taylor paused. "'This isn't about the new Levites, is it?' Prester didn't say anything. "'Didn't I tell you not to take that job?' "'Yeah. "'But you took it. "'Yeah. "'Well, fuck you then, Prester. "'He could hear the cigarette smoke in her voice. "'He was still quit, "'ever since they had decided to do it together that Christmas. "'He decided to hold his tongue, "'decided not to tell her, "'that not every charmer could still put college money away from Dad. "'With a record like his he had few options. "'He hadn't held an identity long enough in the past two years "'to put any real-world equity into it. "'So the best job he had found had been cleaning toilets for the seamsters in IDEO.' Prester steadied his voice. "'Taylor, please, let's just do this. Just business.' "'Fine,' she snapped. He could tell she wasn't doing business, not the kind he wanted. I'll get you the charms, but I'm going to have to pull them from what's available. He could tell where this was going. Short notice leaves you without many options, Prester. It's going to take a theft to get you what you want. Damn, he'd only just gotten used to this identity. Andrick, he realised. Yep, Taylor snapped, exhaling, her smoke seemed to send static crackles through the line, and he's got clients itching for a hit on their South African. Prester held his tongue; he thought everyone had abandoned the South African. no one believed in benevolent bankers looking to give away money anymore, at least so he'd thought. all right, he conceded Elan's taskbar paced across the computer screen, looking rather judgmental. Prester thought. Forward it along, and I'll respond. The money's got to be legit, she warned. It is. There's just not much of it. She paused again. You want this. You deal with the headache. No reports, nothing. Prestor ran a hand through his hair. It was too oily, he realized. How long had it been since he'd showered? I'll play the scam, he promised. Just send it along and pipe the charms to Alan. right? you got a new face already?'' she asked. He nodded. ''Been doctoring it for a few months. Figured something would come up sooner or later.'' ''New security number? Birth? Credit? Rec? It's covered, Taylor.'' Prestor interrupted. I'll ''Give your South African a week's worth of transfers and then tank the old face.'' ''You're going to regret this, Prestor?'' ''I know.'' ''They're aligned.'' Eilan reported. Prestor stirred awake. Dumbed by fatigue, he took a pull from the mug on his desk, forgetting the effects of naps on coffee. He swallowed with a grimace. Eilan had aligned Taylor's charms into the new right, and was slipping the results through the aged plastic lips of Prestor's printer. He thought it looked like the machine was gumming the page, a pair of waxy, chapped jaws, trying the alignment out. Hoping perhaps it was edible. No doubt the printer was as hungry as everything else in Prester's apartment, including himself. He sat up, groaning with the chair, and started rearranging his yarn. Taylor had been good for it. Aylan's printout had forwards on it that Prester hadn't seen yet, each one promising a different route to the same miracles the same desires that suckered the charms into life in the first place. Ten friends, ten minutes, three wishes in an hour. Dumb as it had once sounded to Presta, there were enough people who'd try, just in case, and ship the idea along to their friends, families. Things had been different when charmers had relied only on chain letters, but the principle had been the same. The internet had only sped things up, The pipeline made them insane. Prestor pulled scraps of paper from the piles of envelopes and petitions on his desk. After a few minutes, he scribbled out the names of the new charms and pinned them to the wall. He was almost out of yarn, but he had enough to track the new charms' rolls in the right. Different threads for different wishes. Ribbons on these, sketches on those. Braids for counter-charms. Once Alan got the right moving— Prester'd sell the wall again. He hoped the arts council was still into gutter collage. Right, Prester said, stepping away. Open the reserve charms. To whom, Alan asked mechanically. Doesn't matter, Prester told it. I'm not looking for fireworks here. Just a coincidence. Set, he asked after a moment. Ready, Alan reported. Prester closed his eyes. He only needed a few gallons, a minor wish as it went. He tried to keep Taylor out of his thoughts, tried to keep everything she had, and he didn't, from souring the charm. It didn't matter. He could feel his resentment staining the small right. Taylor never had to worry about how many gallons she had in her tank. Her father had been buying her Metro passes as long as Prester could remember had been forking over credits for new clothes, a better pad, new furniture. Prester hadn't held a pass in weeks, and there was no telling how much longer he could keep the Bel Air running. He couldn't even remember what new things smelled like. "'Send em, he ordered. Outside, he smiled. The pad was warm in his pocket, heated by Alan's now smug computing. Presto had seen the truck parked next to his car in the lot before, but it was always much further down, closer to the pool, nowhere near Prester's dolorous efficiency. He thumbed open the truck's battered tank flap and traced a finger over the gas cap. The paint wasn't rusted in here, and the sun hadn't got to the cap's dark plastic. He unscrewed it, slipped in his hose and started sucking. A few moments later, the truck bled its noxious fuel down the line, Preston only took a few gallons. He didn't want to push the charms. Having only sent ten to affect the coincidence, he feared things would go badly if he tried to take more than he'd earned. Afterward, he slid the hose into his trunk and coaxed his old car to life. He'd hoped to get moving earlier, when the sunlight meant the dim left headlight wouldn't make any difference. Now he just hoped that the night would slip itself over the car, "'shrouding as best it could the old thing's derelict complexion. "'He didn't want to attract attention. "'Downtown rolled past his windows in phantasmal lumps, "'its many signs and streetlights casting multicoloured gazes across Presta's windshield. "'Every building stared at nothing, it seemed, "'each doing its neon best to be looked at in return, "'but self-blind to know if it was working.' Artificial barge boats clung lamely to the roof lines, their finer details brightened by gap-toothed Christmas lights, like lines of glowing birds. People slipped in and out of clubs below, smoking at each other, wandering with the traffic, looking their pointless best and going hurriedly nowhere. Compelled. Compelled. Saturday was the excuse they gave themselves, but Preston knew there were charmers behind the crowds. There were good reasons why the corner mart's business went dead when it did, why ladies' night worked better here than there. Someone wanted a hold-up, another needed a club full of pockets to pick. Charmers made their own opportunities, and different places, different circumstances, decayed as ordered. When he cleared the avenue and manoeuvred through the tree line, he could only see the city through its paranoid glare atop the mist-slicked boughs of the spruce trees. Those that had grown high enough to stare back. Gated communities lifted their parental, wrought-iron fingers as Presta passed. There'd be no decay behind their gates, they promised. Stucco and sheetrock and windows with fake casements. These places had the medical teams that downtown didn't affecting their trowels and nail guns the cosmetic surgery that didn't need neon, that didn't blind itself. It only layered scars, and no one here looked for those. At length he passed the furthest adventuring suburbs and moved down the old logging road towards the Levites' estate. Their gate was open when he arrived, and the motion of the moonlight across the shadow drive looked like an inhalation. Prester looked up at dozens of pairs of laced-together shoes dangling from the Levite's wind-swinging pipeline cable. He wondered what the old weirdos thought they had accomplished. Prestor stretched his feet, reclining as best he could across the chairs tucked and pleated leather. The parlour had the same alternately black-and-white floor tiles that he saw in all these enclaves. He wanted to roll his eyes. Wanted to carve something pithy into the yantras and mandalas and goddamned horseshoes tacked above the dark wainscoting, but he didn't. Elan worked, sedulously on a mahogany lowboy at his elbow, porting Prester's right into the Levite's aged terminal. This looks fine, young man," the Levite said. Prester didn't know his name. Didn't think they had names. Prester smiled. "'I've done my best, sir.' "'Our terminal reports that many of these charms are new.' "'The old man studied Prester through his spectacles. "'The light of faux gas lamps dithered across his pate. "'That will make the right more potent, will it not?' Prester leaned forward. "'Yeah, my right will keep your database secure, "'and the new charms mean it will learn faster. "'The more it encounters, the sooner it will mature.' "'the better it will wish.' "'He glanced at Alan. "'It was almost finished uploading. "'I estimate it will be fully itself within a month.' "'Very good,' the old man smiled, "'hunting and pecking at his keyboard. "'I'll just see to this transfer, then. "'Your familiar should be able to validate the funds shortly.' Prester swallowed, "'fishing a slip of paper from the lapel of his battered coat.' He offered it to the Levite. Use the account listed here, if you don't mind. No sense putting his new money in the old account, just in case any of the South Africans were checking. The old man squinted as he took the paper. Of course. Prester took the cigarettes angrily and stormed through the shop's doors. He felt guilty about smoking. But what did it matter? Who would care? Taylor certainly wouldn't, much as he wanted her to. Back inside his car, he jammed the cigarette lighter into its nest and accelerated out of the lot. Elan sat coolly on the hide beside him, as blue and uninterested as the light slicking the chrome on Prester's dash. He was glad he'd be switching faces in a week. The tickets that damn community cop had tossed at him would have eaten everything he'd earned from the Levites. And then some. At least now, he'd only lose a quarter of it, on a more authentic set of new plates. He could use the rest to get the jump on next month's charms. Maybe for once, people would be calling him. Down the road, he eased the Bel Air into one of Idio's narrow parking spaces. The lot winked at him in rainbow flashes. The oils in its pavement awakened by the mist and the moonlight. Presta shoved his pad into his pocket and picked up the cigarettes. Inside the club, he pulled a pile of cheap placards from another pocket and started handing them out. They promoted a fake show a band he'd come up with last year and asked their bearers to spread the word through graffiti and Xerox. The show, Presta's placard promised, would make their wildest dreams come true, but only if they spread the word. At the bar, Fidance, the tender thrust a meaty finger into Prestor's face. Stop handing that shit out, Prestor. Prestor didn't want to fight. He shoved the remaining placards back into his pocket. Later, he'd count them again, so he could tell Alan how many he'd released. He spread his hands placatingly. Just want a beer, Fid. Out, Fidance reported sourly. You are out, Prestor challenged, of beer. "'Floated the last keg ten minutes ago,' Fidon said. "'Dand if Barks didn't run inventory just last Wednesday. "'We're going to lose at least a thousand tonight without it.' Presta's shoulders tightened. First the cop, now this. It was absurd. Idio had never run out of beer, and Presta hadn't pissed anyone off recently. "'Not any charmers. Who'd be throwing wishes at him?' Presta looked around uneasily. "'Well, all right. I just came to celebrate.' ''Go somewhere else, then,'' Fidance grunted. preston left, unnerved. Outside, a rivet fell from one of the gantry towers spanning the rail line behind the club. One of the metros chimed its way over the tracks on the other side of the avenue. Its overlit riders like stage-painted extras inside. preston could see a few looking at him as they slid by. He had to get to six. Taylor was usually there and he was starting to worry. Maybe Andrick's charms were no good. Maybe he'd whitewashed some old ones, and Prestor's security right was trying to harness dead wishes. He flinched. That always meant trouble. He eased into his car, stunned when he glanced into his mirror to see a gutter-thread seamster standing at the back of the car. The guy looked like he had sheet-metal skin, like his hair was just head-rust and lichen. The kid's eyes shone with the homogenised orange glow of the surrounding city lights. Presta turned, but the people he could see crossing the lot looked normal. Normal for Idio, anyway. He lit another cigarette as he picked his way out of the lot, brakes squealing their distaste for the rain. Six wasn't as crowded as Idio. Presta even liked the music better. They played things down-tempo here. He could only take so much drum and bass from Idio. Taylor was with some corduroy kids in a corner booth. Prester bummed a light from a passing bearded guy and hurried towards the booth. He'd broken the guy's lighter. "'Hey, Taylor,' he said, anxious. She looked up, light from her pad throwing venomous green reflections across her glasses. "'Get that one moving tonight,' she told the others. The kids slid out of the booth, clutching their pads. Prester sat. "'Hey, yourself,' Taylor said." cinching her shoulders get you right off yeah he said money's good you're a damned idiot you're a goddamn idiot she said the air filter clicking in the rafters overhead he swallowed yeah why just wouldn't listen to me would you he'd play along decided he had to play along about what she leaned across a cluster of empty beer glasses you've been took "'By the Levites.' He tried to keep his eyes out of the abyss of Taylor's plunging neckline. "'Designed a security right for them, didn't you?' she pressed. "'Yeah. They already had one.' "'No, they didn't,' Prester scoffed. "'Alan marked their entire grid before I even started collecting charms.' "'Yes,' she said, "'they did. I tried to warn you off, but what the hell do you think I can say over the line?' "'Christ, they've got familiars listening everywhere.' He swallowed. "'Maybe they had other servers, "'remote units that didn't need to splice from the pipeline "'that the main grid used.' He shook his head. "'Even so, Alan would have picked up their relays. "'No familiar can remain quiet for that long.' She grabbed his hand. "'Maybe if you ever came out "'instead of just calling me when you need favours, "'I could have given you the jump.' She lit a cigarette. Now you're just fucked. Let's say you're right. He palmed the sweat from his brow. Me laying a new right over an existing one doesn't mean anything. Nothing wrong with redundancy. Except, she said, exhaling rooftops of smoke, you're the test. You've set yourself up to be screwed and screwed and screwed. You laid out the code, got their terminals loaded with your right, and then empowered it with your own charms. "'Fine. Except now, as the charm-suckers forward and sign and mail to their wishing heart's content, "'they're keeping your right alive, meaning the old one will keep feeding off it.' "'She took a drag from her cigarette. "'Eventually, it'll track the charms back to their source and decide that you're a better target. "'Hell, it may have figured that out already.' Prester rubbed his face. "'Wait!' She folded her arms across her chest. "'Who coded it?' he asked. "'I did. Two months ago.' He scooted closer. "'Well, Christ, Taylor, call it off!' She lidded her gaze. "'You think I've got ties to it? Don't be a dumbass. I took precautions.' Preston could feel the tiny fans in his pad powering up, venting the machine's mechanical heat. "'How, then? Damn you!' she said. "'Scooting out of the booth, "'Come on!' "'No,' he protested, pulling away. "'Let's take my car.' "'Taylor reached out and grabbed his hand again. "'You're lucky you made it this far in that,' she hissed. "'If you want my help, you're coming with me. "'By now the brake fluid's gone. "'The plugs are corroded. "'Who knows?' Prester relented and walked with her towards the Metro Depot. "'He thought about the cop outside of town.' "'About Idio. "'Taylor's right had figured him out. "'He knew it had. "'I can't believe I'm helping you,' she muttered. "'The mist had congealed into rain, "'and it was now gathering in shimmering beads "'on her mostly bare shoulders. "'This is stupid.' "'Prestor held his tongue. "'On the sidewalk they picked their way brusquely "'through the opposing crowd.' Everywhere he looked, Prester saw people slicked with rain, their wet skin and clothes reflecting the city back at him, neon curves and brickwork smears gathered in the dampened shadows of the walkers' dark faces. He saw the walk-sign white men pacing through people, stop-signs in flashes across wet cheeks, power-lines and metro cables tangled in their hair. One walker slammed into him, his many-ringed fingers crunching against the pad in Prestor's pocket. He hoped the stranger hadn't scrambled Alan, Dragging him onward, Taylor pulled him through a trio of night-outers, long-haired girls in clean sweaters from the campus down the lane. They glared at him with eyes like street signs. He couldn't be sure if he lost his balance, or if a nearby light pole had taken a swipe at him. When they passed the entrance to the depot, Presta tugged. The Metro? She jerked back, flashing a look of wet annoyance at him. We are walking. "'Where to?' he said weakly. One of his fake placards flopped from the crowd into a puddle at his feet. Absently, he slid a hand over the pocket where he would stashed them, but he suspected that this one had come back to him from elsewhere. Taylor dragged him without answer, slamming him into a person after person, banging his shins against smooth-brick sidewalk flower gardens.' As the traffic thinned and the buildings stared less at the people and more at each other, Prester started to relax. Here they had shadows, corners, and abutments and alcoves without neon, without windows, places where facades had long since succumbed to the stains of old coal smoke and weak mortar. Prester imagined that these, in the great municipal decay, were only architecturally aware of themselves. Aware that, at some other point, There had been others, a time when they, the buildings, had directed the realities in town, when the integrity of their girders and the strength of their rebar had dictated at what pace things would change. Now, they knew only that entropy was coming at them from different angles, that things fell apart when they shouldn't, that styles matured and moved on before their time, that ultimately they would only be roads... Preston looked up, watching the rain cascade from a length of the pipeline between the gutters of the two buildings. Its insulation had been agitated bare by the data stream, he could tell, and when he planted his palm against a pot marked ashlar to brace for Taylor's sharp turn into the alley, he could feel the line humming through the stone, animating the self-blind building beyond its time into tasks it couldn't contain. He heard things walking behind him as they cleared the alley. Looking over his shoulder, he saw diamond-plate elbows and dumpster-green eyeballs, sucked out of his view by the fall of new shadows. They looked now like their metaphors—trash bins and fire escapes. The dark places were groaning in the rain. Taylor's right was piercing its agents together piecemeal from the city's dying body parts. Taylor's right was piecing its agents together, piecemeal, from the city's dying body parts. Taylor wheeled about. They were standing now in a bricked lane. Coffee shops and bookstores lined the far side of the pedestrian moor, and oak trees stretched in stylized planters, their leafy fingers foaming with green wet light under the glare of the nearby security lamps. "'Check the air,' she ordered. Obediently, Prestor fished out his pad. Its face had cracked in the collision with the ringed walker, but it had life enough to glow Alan's thoughts. Prestor hammered a few quick commands into the pad's rubber buttons, but Alan couldn't detect the pipeline's wireless gaze here. Atmospherics, he reported, looking up. Taylor was tapping at her own pad. Let's hope so, she said. Her hair now flat against her neck, dark ribbons tracing the bluish veins just beneath her pale skin. Prester's own hair was guiding rain into cold runnels down his back. "'So what now?' he asked, squinting. Taylor cinched her shoulders up. "'By now your accounts have been reabsorbed. Your new faces are gone. I expect your apartment might already have burned down, but the rain might have delayed that.' "'Christ!' Prester said. She looked at him. "'My right is bouncing forwards and rooting letters by dozens every minute.' "'It's got chatbots spreading ideas in rooms across the line. "'It's not that hard for it to get people's wishes aligned,' she said. "'It just has to encourage the right ones in the right order. "'I mean, none of the wishers knows they're helping it get you "'when they wish for a shift in road maintenance "'or a clearing out of the tenements on your side of town.' "'Coincidences,' he realised. "'Results, rhetoric,' she continued, waving a hand. The right can encourage them to wish what it wants. Vague is good when you're talking about thousands to harness. The right only has to harvest them up and send them where it wants. Presta laughed. You mean at me? Well, you'll work, really. He looked at her. So why are we here? She pointed. Presta followed her arm. They had approached it from a different route, so he didn't recognize the place, but he could see it now. The Arts Council, smug and clean at the end of the mole. The collages, he concluded aloud. She nodded. Bait and switch. Prester started dragging her this time. If the place was still open, and if he could find some line for Alan, they might be able to reuse some of Prester's old rights. Their effects had long since died off, and he could only remember a few of them. Job opportunities, a nice table downtown, a carburetor with a longer life. If he could salvage even a few of the charms out of the old yarn and newspaper write-maps, he could set Taylor's right on a dead trail, send it chasing down casual lines that no longer existed. Like the buildings around him, Preston would decay himself out of the Wright's starving reach. He would reduce himself to dead art, a collection of strings and paper that had long since lost its meaning, a road that went nowhere. "'You're thinking,' she said. "'My new face is my old one,' he said back, feeling everywhere upon him the harmonics of the rain. The sidewalk hummed beneath its aquatic massage. The gutters sang. The old buildings could hope once again that the sky might wash away some of their entropic scabs.' Things were breathing while Decay stared at itself with unblinking neon eyes. He would kick his way into the Arts Council if he had to, if Taylor didn't have any charms that she could work on a forgetful night watchman, or the rotation of the log. And once inside, he would replace the chain in one of the place's brushed steel commodes, with his aged length from Idio. He would let visitors and custodians flush his old chain's power into the walls, back into the art. It would buy the ruse some time. Come on, he said, pulling her to him under a nearby awning. He held his breath, hoping that the cigarettes in his pocket would still light. Taylor laughed, playing along, and thumbed the cigarettes afire with her lighter. They smoked, safe for now, exhaling together into the rain, giving it back what it was giving them.
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
2: Darren's story originally appeared in Paper Cities, an anthology of urban fantasy, a collection of fantasy stories with a modern setting. Sure, on the surface, it's cyberpunk but Darren's clever use of magic as a metaphor for programming and vice versa, and his spin on the Prester John legend, make it something very unique. Our second story for the week also plays off of old legends, and is just as unique. It's titled The Secret of Calling Rabbits, and is written by Wendy N. Wagner. Wendy is the author of Skinwalkers, a Pathfinder Tales novel inspired by Viking lore. Her short fiction has appeared in many anthologies, including Shattered Shields, Armoured and The Way of the Wizard, and the magazines Beneath Ceaseless Skies and the Lovecraft e-zine. She is the guest editor of Nightmare Magazine's Queers Destroy Horror special issue, due out in October 2015, and the non-fiction editor of Lightspeed's Women Destroy Science Fiction, which was named one of NPR's Best Books of 2014. She lives in Oregon with her very understanding family. Find out more about her via the link on our website. The story is narrated for us by Rish Outfield, a writer, actor and podcaster who can be heard as host of the Dunstief Audio Fiction magazine, which presents genre stories with a full cast. He also performs audiobooks for Audible and occasionally becomes a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. So here we have... THE SECRET OF CALLING RABBITS by Wendy N. Wagner
0: The breeze shifted as Rugel ran, and he caught a scent upon it, sweet and strong, a scent that reached into the depths of his memories and twanged them. He lost his footing at the power of it, and he threw himself into a bush beside the path, gasping, He preferred running to hiding, but he couldn't run with that scent thickening the air. His pursuer shouted again, Wait! Show me how you did that! Her voice distracted him from the smell of the past. It focused his mind on the pressing problem of survival. He should have never come back to this place. She came closer, and Rugel peeked out at the little girl in the path. At his eye level, her knees, bared by her too-short shift, were scabbed and grass-stained as she spun a slow-searching circle. The little man—no, dwarf, although dwarf was a generous measure of someone his size, crouched further down inside the currant bush. He had a gift for going unseen. Perhaps the girl would lose sight of him. "'Please!' she stopped in front of the bush picking out his gnarled face from the tangle of undergrowth.
4: I saw you call the rabbit.
0: Rugel cursed to himself. He should never have summoned the hare. Or at least, if he called it, he ought to have killed it. Now he'd go hungry, and this big creature had seen him. But it was a child big, he thought with a measure of hope, and children were easily scared. Go away, he growled. She stood solid, brown eyes fierce. He tried again. I'll kill ya." Her lip trembled, but not much. She had seen him pet the hare. Now she could not imagine him performing violence. He had killed before, both humans and animals. Although never children. Only grown men bent on harm. But she did not know that. She had only seen a very small man, tiny as herself, running his fingertips over the calm back of a brown rabbit. He straightened himself up out of the currant bush. You've got to have dwarf magic to call animals, girl, he called. You don't have it. Can't I learn it? No. He meant to snap out the word. Two hundred years of running and hiding and sneaking around the edges of the world had given him a voice as leathery and tough as his face. It should have sent her home crying. She did start to cry. But even dripping tears, she stood fast, staring at him while her shoulders quaked without sound. He could hardly stand to look at all that mute unhappiness. Face half-twisting away, he grumbled. Why are you crying? I'm so lonely, she whispered. Peter's
4: sick, and Mama's milk dried up so they had to send the baby to Aunt Reldas, and Papa's farming all day and hunting all night to pay the witching bill. I'm all alone.
0: The tears grew larger and the quaking grew stronger. A tiny sound came up in her throat, barely audible. The sound pained his ears. He didn't like the sounds children made when they were unhappy, and he didn't understand her story. But he knew, alone. He stepped away from the currant bush. Who's Peter? She swiped the snot from her face with her sleeve.
4: My brother, he stepped on a nail last week, and then he couldn't move his leg. So Eva, the witch put him on a cot in her house and bound his ankles with magic cord and rubbed his whole body with tincture of mandrake root.
0: Mandrake! That was the smell. Rugel shivered. Oh, he should have never come back to this place. The girl had caught her breath and now added, in a pleased voice,
4: I'm going to be a witch like her when I
0: grow up. He looked at her and could tell by looking, that she was right. There was human magic pricking in the back of her eyes. Right now, if she put her mind to it, she probably could call that hair out of the bush. But he wasn't going to tell her that. His silence did not discourage her.
4: Papa says our village is cursed.
0: Yes. Feeling a story coming, Rugel sat down to take the weight off his feet. They ached sometimes. He'd like a better pair of boots. But he was only a so-so shoemaker. Maybe he would steal a pair, the next village. The girl squatted so she could still see his face.
4: "'It rained so much this winter, the rye fields washed away. That's something bad.'
0: She lowered her voice.
4: "'And I heard Papa tell Eva he thought there was something in the woods stealing our luck. Maybe something as bad as a hobgoblin.'
0: With his wizened brown face, Rugel had been called worse things, and he stole plenty. Once his people practised the arts of calling ore from the dark places of the earth, of spinning straw into gold, but this was great earth magic, and he, the last of the dwarves, did not dare such workings. He made do with the safer, minor talents, animal charming, theft, invisibility. But not here. Even those shabby excuses for magic were too risky in this mandrake-stinking forest. The little girl settled onto her bottom, stretching her legs in front of her with a sound of contentment.
4: "'I'm Rachel,'
0: she announced. He grunted. Her eyes were as round as a hare's as she stared at him. She expected him to introduce himself, he realized. And for the first time since he was very young— he was tempted to tell her. He hadn't heard his name spoken in another's voice in so so long. He jumped to his feet. I've got to go.
4: Will I see you again?
0: She sounded excited, tangling her legs in her hurry to keep, tangling her legs in her hurry to catch up with him. Maybe, maybe not. He called over his shoulder, and drawing on all his woodscraft, disappeared into the bracken. An odd piece of him wanted to hide and watch her enjoy his disappearing act. But instinct and habit kept him running. Instinct, and a breeze carrying the graveyard smell of mandrake. Rugel didn't want to see the girl again. He told himself that as he followed the game trails, fouling the wires of any unsprung rabbit snares he found. It was a tiny revenge, undersized for its risk. The men of the village were already on edge. If they caught him, they'd tip to violence. He pinched a wire between his fingers, feeling a fading warmth. The trap was freshly sprung, the rabbit twitching when Rugel came across it. He could use magic to melt that wire, heat it until it boiled in the palm of his hand. It would be easy. There was so much power waiting in the rich earth of this place. It called to him and the quiet coals of magical talent hidden within him. He struggled to resist the temptation, to soak up power and blast every last wire snare in the forest. He was painfully close to the village. If he scaled the boulder beside him, he could see the roofs of the little town. It was smaller than the dwarven village they'd built it over. He refused to look at it, and if he allowed himself to use magic now, he'd never get away from that sight. Slipping the rabbit into his pack, he looked at the warren entrance hidden in the lee of the boulder. The trapper had sought it out, placing his snare where the rabbits would pass it, going in and out of their burrow. Placing death where an animal expected, only the security of home. That was humans, all right. There was a bitter taste in Ruggell's mouth as he picked his way back to his little camp. He moved every night cashing his gear before setting out for the day's errands. He'd never stayed so long in one place before. But he'd never come back to this place before, never seen bigs in the forest his people had replanted and nurtured. Stealing their catch and breaking their traps felt too good for him to just move on. Rugel pulled the rabbit's hind leg loose of its flop-limbed body and began to gnaw it. Once he had eaten meat cooked well, "'spiced and sauced by his mother, the best cook in his village. "'But he'd learned early on not to risk fire. "'There'd been times men had found him, "'had taken one look at his lumpy face, and tried to capture him. "'They always wanted something, gold usually, "'the famed dwarven gold in all the stories, "'never mind that his people never had any use for that greasy stone. "'And the bigs that didn't want gold wanted his luck.' His little hands, his little feet, anything tiny and portable was fair game for a trophy, just like the rabbit's foot he was carefully nibbling around. The claws were sharp. He cast the paw deep into the brush. Soon enough, something would clean it up. He had no fears humans would connect it to him. In the stories, dwarfs never ate rabbit. Rugel eyed the other rabbit leg, its lucky foot still hairy and dirty and couldn't bring himself to bite into it. He was old. He was sick of the taste of raw meat. And there wasn't a soul alive who knew his name. He got to his feet. Maybe he'd try tickling trout for a real dinner. The creek was cool, shadowed by thickets of willow grown tightly together, made impenetrable with lashings of vine and ivy. Here, where it meandered into a curve the creek made a pool deep and dark overhung by an enormous alder the alder's pale trunk was lapped all over by the green tongues of lungwort rugel made a note to come back and collect the viridian lichen it was good for bandaging wounds he was ashamed that such herblore was the extent of his healing practice but life on the run precluded the use of greater magics once, as a child, he had assisted his father healing a deer, its shoulder singed down to the muscle by the same wildfire that had swallowed the forest. Once he had helped his mother push disease out of an old oak tree, weakened by lightning strikes. But that was all earth magic, fed by the land itself. Every bit a dwarf used bound him more tightly to the soil he drew it from. When the elders worked their great works, they became as rooted to the land "'as the alder with its long wart. "'He blinked up at the tree "'and wondered who had planted it after the wildfires, "'which dwarf dead and gone. "'He had tried to keep all of their names fresh in his memory, "'but they had faded out one by one, "'till even his little sister's name eluded him. "'It was something like Lily, he thought. "'He wished he could remember.' He hunkered at the edge of the pool, sharpening an elder stick in readiness as a spear. He was not a good trout-tickler, and expected the need to fall back on the spear to supplement his fish dinner. It would be bloody and ugly. But he was used to that. A scream from the willow thickets made him jerk his knife and jab the palm of his hand. With a curse, he dropped the stick. He snapped off a strip of lungwort and pressed it against the cut, "'listening again for the voice in the willows. "'He didn't need to hear it a second time "'to know it was the girl's voice. "'She was crying. "'The first sound had been a shriek of pain, "'but now she was sobbing, whimpering. "'She sounded badly hurt. "'Stay away from her,' he whispered to himself. "'It'll just be trouble. "'Look at all those fish waiting for you to catch them.' "'He forced his eyes to the pond.' A fish struck. He saw the ripples of it. But the girl was still crying. He put his knife in his belt pouch and ran into the thicket. The willows grew densely, impenetrable for someone without Rugel's woodcraft. But he barely noticed the branches clawing at his face or the vines twisting around his ankles. A sense of urgency pulled him forward. The image of the girl as he had seen her last rose up in his memory. She had stood there in her homespun shift, as eager and nervous on the forest path as a young hare, with the same dark and liquid eyes. Curiosity had made her brave back there. Curiosity had probably gotten her hurt. He felt certain of it as he slipped through the last tangle of willow. He stood in a small bright space, a pocket meadow made when an ancient oak toppled, its body flattening the tender ash saplings around it. He couldn't help noticing the fire scars on its aged trunk. It was older even than he. The girl lay at the edge of the clearing, in a snarl of the oak tree's exposed roots. She had stopped shrieking. Instead, she was silent and still. Girl? It came out in a whisper. He cleared his throat, surprised to find it so dry. Girl! She moaned. "'He dropped to his knees beside her. "'What happened?' "'She moaned again, and he let his eyes answer the question. "'Where the earth had been lifted by the upturned oak's roots "'were dozens of small holes. "'Some had torn open, revealing tunnels the right size for burrowers, "'and when he looked at her hands, they were dark with soil. "'The right was particularly dirty and dark purple, "'with two red marks staring up at him like angry eyes.' or like the impressions made by a snake's fangs. He touched the girl's face and was startled by how cold it was. "'Girl, can you speak?' He tapped her shoulder with no response. He tapped again. "'Rachel!'
4: "'I saw a bunny,' she whispered. "'But something bit me.'
0: He squeezed his eyes shut. She could have called that rabbit if she knew the trick if he'd taught it to her. When he opened them again, the red bite mark stared back at him, reproachful. Rugel knew a great deal about surviving in the woods. He knew lungwort for cuts, and he knew clay mud for bee stings. He had once set his own broken leg with a ewe stave and deer sinews. But snake bites were beyond his medical skills. He knew nothing beyond binding the bitten limb and prayer. He ripped a strip from the bottom of his tunic and knotted it just above her wrist, remembering those healings he had helped work as a child. Magic beat prayer when the gods he knew were as dead as his people. He hesitated, his throat tight. He could not imagine using magic so close to the village. He would be trapped here. His spirit would blend with the spirit of the stones and soil, and he would never get the stink of mandrake out of his nose. No! He couldn't do that. The girl whimpered. He stared at her pale face, where the freckles stood out like flecks of dirt on white stone. She was dying. If he did nothing and just left her here, the snake's poison would work its way through her body, turning it silent and swollen. She might die, even if he managed to get her to the witch. Snake bites were beyond most witches' power. He thought of what would happen if he took her to the village. He was small and gnarled and ugly, as bad as a hobgoblin to people afraid of ill-luck creatures. She was just a little girl, grey and still and close to death. The humans would think the worst. He could still smell the mandrake scent on the breeze. She might die anyway, he reminded himself. He didn't need to face all that. He could just run away. Her eyes fluttered. "'and she saw him.
4: "'Little man,'
0: she said. "'It was almost a croak. "'Something in his gut twisted in response. "'She already looked worse than when he had burst into the clearing, "'the purple swelling moving up her arm. "'A witch who could cure a brother with a paralyzed leg "'might be able to cure a snake-bite,' thought. "'He squatted beside the girl and lifted her into his arms.' Her feet hung close to the ground as he held her. He shifted his grip, and something quivered inside his chest, a phantom hand trembling against his heart. He took a step into the forest, in the direction of Rachel's village, and behind them he heard a rabbit drum and all clear on the side of the oak. He broke into a run. Despite the weight in his arms, it felt just like the run he had made from the creek to village two hundred years ago. His feet still knew the trail, the little ridges of rock beneath the soil speaking in their same old tongue. For a moment he was running through charred tree trunks and drifts of ash, his body a lads again, running toward his village with screams reverberating in his ears. No one had seen him when he reached the village, he remembered. He had crouched in the shadow of a boulder, maybe even the rabbit snare Boulder, and watched them cut down the women. His young power, still small and fragile inside him, flared with the force of his rage. He reached into the land to raise a wall of fire against the big men and felt the sick earth shudder. There was no strength in its scorched soil. His power, overspent, unfueled, sputtered out. His vision grayed, but he could still see his sister running with her shift pulled up over her grass-stained knees. Darkness still hadn't taken him when he saw the scythe ripped through her belly in an explosion of blood. Tears welled up as Rugel remembered it all, blocking his vision as he ran. His hands were full of the girl, and he could not wipe them away. He stumbled on, remembering. When the elders tried to speak, the big men screamed over the words— They struck down the old men, even as the elders struggled to draw power from the deep bones of the earth. They thought we were stealing their luck, he whispered to the little girl, whose head only rattled against his chest. They wouldn't listen. They were sure we were evil. He almost dropped Rachel then, as he crossed the invisible boundary he'd set for himself since his arrival in the forest. He'd never come this close to her village before. For a second... He wondered if he should drop her and just keep running as long as he could. The scent of mandrake was so strong now, too strong for him to think clearly. He thought of the first time he had smelled it, sitting on the fresh graves of his mother and father and all the rest, the brilliant green of new mandrake shoots pushing up through the ash-stained soil. He had watched them grow far faster than any ordinary mandrake, sending out leaves to stretch for the sun. Little buds revealed white flowers, like tiny eyes in the thickets of green leaves. Such a strange and horrible smell. And now so strong, he almost choked on the air. Rugel passed the wattle fence of the first cottage. He had arrived in the village. The girl's breathing was very slight, her skin almost gray. He felt a pang. If only he could have prayed for her. If only he had taught her the secret for calling the rabbits. But it was too late for that. Already, as he lowered her to the ground, he could hear voices coming from the cottage behind him. He might have a few seconds. He could still run, like he'd run the last long years of his life. He would run. He'd run far away from this place, maybe as far as Ireland. But not until he made things right. She wouldn't be here almost dead, if it hadn't been for him. He owed her. Rugel pressed the creased brown lips close to the little girl's ear, and he whispered, "'This is the secret of calling rabbits, Rachel.' Her eyelids trembled. He couldn't be certain she had heard him. He added anyway, "'Call to them while you think rabbit thoughts. You've got the magic. All you need is the knowledge.' "'Like calling to like.' "'He wished she knew his name. "'Then it was suddenly too late to run. "'Great hands closed on his arms and pulled him away from her, "'lifting him as easily as a child, even as he kicked and screamed. "'On the ground, Rachel went rigid, "'her back bending like a bow and foam sprang from her lips. "'Time slowed for Rugel as he felt a fist connect with his face, "'felt the skin above his eyebrows split.' but he saw only the little girl's face as it went red, then purple, then dark. She was dying. It was too late for the witch's cure. And Rugel knew. The time for running was over. He reached down inside himself for the little spark of magic he'd kept banked all these years. The only way to feed it was to reach out to the earth, the stones and soil of this village. There would be no leaving once he touched that energy. He felt his body becoming hotter with the strength of his growing power. "'Rachel,' he whispered. He could barely see her beyond the crowd, jerking and twitching on the pale grass. He had forgotten how to break down the venom in her blood. But he could give her air, could shield her heart from the poison's progress. He could buy time for the witch.' Rugel stretched his magical grasp wider, drawing energy from the soil beneath the village, the boulder by the rabbit warren, the banks of the stream. And then his heat was too much for his captors. There were shouts, and Rugel was flying through the air, his body launched from furious hands. He struck the edge of the mandrake patch with a horrible jolt. He lay there for a second, feeling the magic catch hold of Rachel's lungs, sensing her heart beating normally again, and then he forced himself to get up. He pushed deeper into the mandrake patch. Knowing he ran over graves, he dug himself. He might not be able to flee this place, but there was still a chance he could escape the angry mass of villagers if he just made it through this field. He spurred himself into a run and felt the first of the rocks strike his back. He ran and felt a bigger stone, as large as a man's both fists joined, smash into his back and send him sprawling. In his memory, he saw his father, face down in the thin young soil, with the fletching of an arrow between his shoulder blades. Rugel sat on his belly in the soft loam, his arms and legs still pumping, still running, a reflex after two hundred years. The rocks kept coming, big and small, some thrown with greater accuracy than others. The back of his skull leaked hot trickles down into his collar, and when a stone smashed his shoulder blade he gasped with agony, sucking in hummus and leaf bits. But his legs kept running. The soil churned away under the motion of his legs, and he felt himself burrowing down into the earth. All that running, he'd forgotten. Dwarves were creatures of the earth, expert diggers, and safety to a dwarf always meant underground. It was so easy to forget, alone. After he'd buried his dead... "'all forty-eight men and women and children and elders. "'He had begun to run. "'He'd gotten good at running away. "'He put effort into it now, "'concentrating power into his treading arms, "'and while he could still feel the rocks, "'he moved away from them. "'They were glancing off the muscle of his buttocks, "'hardly painful at all. "'The cool softness of soil pressed against his face, "'the cut above his eye no longer stung. "'He hoped the witch could take away Rachel's pain.' the way the soil took away his. Laughter bubbled up. Exhilarated laughter. He was escaping, he was getting away, and he breathed in grit and loam with the ease of breathing air. It felt good, sliding into his lungs. Even the wriggle of the earthworms in his throat was no more irritating than the passage of air bubbles inside the intestines. His arms slowed now, pressing up against stone, immovable and massive, attenuating into slender coils that worked themselves into the stone's crannies There was shelter there, shelter, and something tangy and mineral he found himself craving His legs trembled as a soil creature, a nematode or woodlouse brushed bristles against sensitive skin Movement ground into such slowness it became near immobility and Rugel felt his thoughts slow with it His mind constricted to one point of focus, so intense it was like a ray of brilliant green light, and stones, pain, villagers—yes, even the little girl-child—were forgotten entirely. There was only green, and the peace of settling into the soil, and the sense that up above there was something warm and vital he would someday reach up to touch with new green leaves. Rachel sat with her knees clasped, staring at the spray of stones surrounding a pushed-up mound of soil. The little man had gone down in there. The villagers left, but he didn't come out, not even later that night when Rachel snuck out of the witch's hut to search for him. She watched the mound, intent for any movement. Some of the stones around it were stained blood-brown. Someone patted her shoulder. It was Eva, the witch, and she squeezed the shoulder kindly before crossing to the mound and dropping to her knees. Her gnarled old hands seized a rock and tucked it quickly into the pocket of her apron. "'Well, what are you waiting for?' The little girl shook her head. She didn't understand the woman's impatient tone or the brisk movements of her hands collecting stones. The old woman waved her hand, indicating the field full of plants with white flowers. The stones will slow the growth of new seedlings. They're not as bad as weeds, but they'll make the roots grow in crooked. The girl reached out for one of the rocks, her movement slow and uncertain. Eva smiled broadly. That's my girl. Got to take good care of the mandrake plants. They're precious rare, and there aren't many villages with a patch like ours. Eva smoothed the soil over the mound tamping it down like a farmer planting garlic. The light of memory fired in Rachel's eyes.
4: You used tincture of mandrake root when you helped my brother.
0: I did. It saved his life. And I used it to cure your snake-bite. Rachel closed her fingers over a stone and felt its weight in her hand. In her mind's eye she saw the dwarf's wrinkled face coarse as a carved turnip a week after Sam Samhain, his body as small and twisted as a mandrake root.
4: "'The roots look like little men, don't
0: they?' Rachel asked. And she looked over the field, as big as her father's field of peas and every foot lush with the green foliage of mandrake plants. "'Yes. Strange, isn't it? How one of the best plants for curing a man looks like one.' "'That's the way things work, though. Like will call to like.' The old woman eased herself to her feet, and gave Rachel's shoulder another pat. "'You come see me any time now, little Rachel. I've got plenty to teach you.' The little girl sat alone on the edge of the mandrake field, the red-stained stone folded in her fist, finally certain that the little man was gone. She closed her eyes and tears soaked her eyelashes until they traced courses like rivers, like questing roots, down the soft slopes of her cheeks. Rachel let the tears dry on her cheek before she opened her eyes again. When she pried her salt-crusted lids apart, she was surprised to see a hair browsing between the mandrake tops. It looked nervous at her presence, but it merely munched with one eye on her, content for the moment. She watched it for a few minutes its awkward hops more endearing than any other rabbit she had ever seen. And somehow, she knew what to do, just as if someone whispered the instructions in her ear. Come, she called. She focused her mind on rabbity thoughts, soft and welcoming as fresh-turned soil. Inside her, she could feel a strange flickering, as warm and welcome as a candle flame. She focused her mind and felt the flickering steady, "'and grow even warmer.' "'The rabbit hopped right to her. "'Rachel laughed as she stroked its soft, humped back. "'Its fur beneath her fingertips felt luxuriant and warm, "'softer than anything she'd ever touched. "'She scooped the little creature up "'and rested her cheek on its side. "'Around her, the flowers of the mandrakes nodded on their stalks like tiny, sleepy eyes. "'Beneath the soil, a new root began to reach toward the sun.' Nameless, but not alone. Finally, no longer alone.
2: Such a haunting and heartbreaking story. Please remember, dear listeners, that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license. Which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website, and you know we can't keep the service ticking over with love alone. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website. Until next week, dear listeners, enjoy that beverage. Raise a glass for me. Bye now.
0: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.